calm day and the visitors are coming in droves to enjoy the scenery and hike the backwoods trails of the Shenandoah National Park. The same trails that 24-year-old Julianne Williams and 26-year-old Lolly Winans had come here to travel. They were last seen alive on May 24th. Their bodies were found eight days later. Rangers are still posted at the path leading up to the crime scene, but there are other rangers out there walking the Appalachian Trail, talking to hikers about what they might have seen these last few weeks. Investigators are following many leads. Forensic evidence, though, is the backbone of such cases. Flags mark where possible clues have been found. Logbooks, like this one, have been taken out of the shelters where the women may have stopped. Park police are reviewing any parking or speeding tickets written in the past few weeks. And while officials say this is an isolated incident, hikers now aren't taking any chances. Filling out their backcountry permits, it was this clue that led rangers to the victims. And the permit then gave us an idea of about when they would be in the park and their approximate location. Mm -hmm. So uh, that is one reason that we, they were found so quickly. My husband is saying he's not sure we should go hiking by ourselves tomorrow. <laughs> and I'm saying we'll put both locks on the cabin door tonight. Gene <laughs> and Tom McCardle come down from Maryland to the Shenandoah National Park several times a year. They were shocked to hear that two women were discovered dead here on Saturday. It's the first time I've ever heard of a crime up here, let alone a murder. The women were found in a campsite off a trail near the Skyline Drive in the Madison County portion of the park. That's near Skyland Lodge. Busloads of people like these from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, are still enjoying the park, most unaware of what happened. Some tourists are now wondering if they're safe to come up here. Statistically, it is quite safe. Now, certainly there are isolated incidents, but uh, statistically, yes, it is quite safe. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, this week, I'm starting a new series. Who killed Lolly Winans and Julie Williams? And I'm joined by a very special guest, award-winning investigative journalist and author and outdoors expert, Catherine Miles. Now, this is a horrific double murder that took place in May 1996 on the Shenandoah National Park in Virginia. Lolly's and Julie's murder piqued my interest when I talked with Bill Thomas, brother of Kathy Thomas, who was murdered alongside her girlfriend Becky Dowski in October 1986 on a scenic Virginia roadway. Now, Catherine heard me talk with Bill on Real Crime Profile, and she then contacted me afterwards to find out if I'd be willing to talk with her. And I agreed. Now, some of that interview you'll find in Catherine's brilliant book, Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders, and I highly recommend that you read the book. When a copy was sent to me, I literally couldn't put it down. And then I wanted to turn the tables because I had so many questions and I wanted to interview Catherine. And now I'm going to share that interview with all of you. But before we get into it, there's a trigger warning as we discuss the graphic detail of the crime scene And we talk about it in detail not to be gratuitous, but because it holds a mirror up to the killer and provides critical information about who killed Lolly and Julie. And so listener discretion is advised. Okay, with that having been said, let's join my interview with the brilliant Catherine Miles. 
Hey, everybody, and welcome to Crime Analyst and an incredibly special episode because this week in the Intelligence Cell, I am joined by Catherine Miles, who is an incredible author of multiple books. But today we're going to be talking about a particular book that is absolutely fantastic. And my listeners have to, you have to pick it up, pick up a copy of Trailed. One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. But I really want Catherine to introduce herself. So, Catherine, please tell us more about yourself before we dive into the case. Absolutely. And thank you so much. Um, You know, your listeners don't know, but I've been a very big and longtime fan of yours. So it's a real thrill to be here talking to you. I'm an investigative journalist and a professor um, and also an avid outdoors person who uh, was about in my mid-20s in the in the mid-1990s when this um, very heinous crime of two female backpackers occur. And I think like a lot of women my age, the case really rattled me and really changed my relationship with the outdoors. So it's a, a case I've been thinking about for a long time. I think it really influenced some of my work as an environmental studies professor, some of my work as a journalist, and then and then a lot of my sort of recreational time as well. Yes. And as an outdoors fan and enthusiast, I can absolutely understand why it rattled you. And I it should rattle everybody, actually. Um, and I'm just going to give a trigger warning up the top because we are going to talk about Lolly Winans and Julie Williams's case specifically. That's the case that's featured in Trailed, your incredible book. It's it's a body of work, actually, you know, a real investigation digging in to the case. And you also detail many other cases. And I have to say, you know me, it rattled me to my core just how many unsolved murders we have of women where the victims have been forgotten, the cases seem to have been forgotten, and they're unresolved. And each time, and I know this in law enforcement from my own casework, and still now I keep correcting law enforcement when they come out after something heinous has happened and they say it's an isolated incident before they've even begun investigating it. And it really drives me insane when I see that phrase. And you have put that phrase across the cases that you have dug into to show the context, the macro and the micro. And each time I was furiously writing in the book, another bloody isolated incident, question mark. You know, these are not isolated incidents to women. To us, we see these cases and it puts the fear of God into us. And we know that it's a public protection issue straight away. So let's start off before I'm, I'm getting very irate right at the start. And I should thank you, first of all, for writing the book, because it is an incredible body of work. And also, I really love the fact that, A, you became obsessed with the case, but B, you did an incredible job of the victimology, what I would call the victimology, which is always my starting point of characterising Lolly and Julie. So let's start there, shall we? Will you explain who they were and, and why this case was so important? Why did you connect with them? Absolutely. Yeah. And thank you for starting there. I really appreciate it. You know, Lolly and Julie were, by all accounts, really just remarkable, selfless, 
beautiful people. And I think that we really can't account for the loss, both in terms of their close family and friends, and then also culturally and socially. And luckily, I was really fortunate enough to work very closely with both their friends and families. Um, and I also had some archival materials of theirs. So, so I felt very, very glad and very grateful to be able to paint a very full portrait of who they were prior to this attack. Julie uh, was born and raised in a small town in Minnesota. She was an introvert. She was quiet. She could seem a little serious at first glance, um, but very warm, very friendly, um, just a really great friend. Her Catholic faith, faith was very important to her. Uh, she developed very early on a real love, both of the outdoors and, and geology as an academic discipline. She also worked tirelessly um, doing sort of social justice work, whether that was serving as a translator for Latinx um, domestic abuse survivors, working overseas, working on Native American re reservations on issues of clean water, really just sort of as her friends described her, a one-woman Peace Corps at a very early age. And she had arrived at this really wonderful organization called Woods Women in 1995. And she had taken a canoeing class there. It was a very sort of female-centric outdoor program that was based on egalitarianism, consensus-based decision-making, people feeling great in their bodies. And that was really important to her. She was a teenage sexual assault survivor, and that had really rattled her. While she was there, she met Lolly Winans, who um, I like to describe as kind of the yin to her Lolly had grown up in a very, very wealthy family in Gross Point, Michigan. It was a broken family. Her mother's second husband began sexually assaulting Lolly when she was very young, which had just really torn the family apart. So for most of her young adult life, she had a pretty strained relationship with her parents. She wandered around a little bit, kind of trying to find herself in the face of that trauma and really found outdoor recreation as just a really great salve of mission. And she had this goal of creating an outdoor recreation program for sexual assault survivors as a way that they could really kind of find a way to become comfortable in their own bodies. She was riotously funny. She was always the life of the party. She loved jam bands and concerts. She loved to be with her friends. Any money she had, she would always spend on them. She usually had a Corona in her hand um, and really just, you know, I think her legacy really lives on for a lot of people. So they met in May of 1995. By all accounts, it was love at first sight. And, you know, as I say in the book, I think it's really important to keep in mind what it was to be considering a same-sex relationship in 1995. This was still really the end of the AIDS crisis. I think there was a lot of hysteria centered around same-sex relationships. This was three years before Matthew Shepard was very brutally murdered for his sexuality. This is when we see anti-sodomy laws happening around the state. So this was not a safe space to be exploring this relationship. They had some security and safety at Woods Women for that summer. But then after they left that summer, they really had to figure out how to navigate a culture that was not going to be accepting to their relationship. Yes. And that, that context is important to take us back in time. Um, also, just to mention the fact that you talk about them both being um, sexual abuse survivors. And I just want to make a point of just how prevalent that is amongst women and girls. And oftentimes it's not spoken about. That level of trauma 
And you mentioned trying to find yourself thereafter, you know, doing the work, but then finding in natural beauty that that was a salvation to them. And I think, you know, it does just talk to how prevalent violence against women and girls really is. Um, and then when you go back in time about same-sex relationships, that provides another layer of context because it's questions that we all ask, isn't it? Well, why are women and girls, why is the femicide rate so high? Is it about our sex? Is it about oppression? Is it about the relationship that the two of them had? These are all questions that, that we have to think about. But the femicide rate is incredibly high. And back then... It wasn't as high, but there is something or there, you know, for me, and I'm saying there is, not just there was, there's something going on in Virginia with so many women being targeted, um, particularly in remote and isolated areas. It assumes even more significance. Just when you think back in the day, how many women were really doing outdoors type things. I mean, they were lucky enough, as you said, to go to a very progressive college and woods woman and all the things that they were doing. It was quite unusual at that time. So that makes it even more unique that they were targeted whilst they were out in a remote, isolated place of natural beauty, doesn't it? Right. And as you say, these are not isolated incidents. Uh, you know, just a few years before Lolly and Julie were murdered, there was another very horrific assault of a young female same-sex couple just off the Appalachian Trail in one of the spur trails. Um, one woman, Rebecca White, brutally murdered her partner, Claudia Brenner, survived, had five bullets in her, managed to hike out bleeding profusely and get help. And, you know, Claudia Brenner was very helpful for me in researching this book. And, and as she describes, this assault, which was very much a hate crime and very much a targeted assault because of their sexuality, was really just only the first assault. What came next was prejudice from law enforcement officers, people assuming that this must have been a result of some kind of infighting in a lesbian community, you know, being, you know, publicly shamed for her sexuality in the courtroom. And so I think we really start to see the way in which these these ripple effects, these ripples of trauma can really occur, especially for people who identify as socially subordinate groups or minorities. Yes. And the, the rush to make a judgment early on in investigations, that's been very problematic in this case and in others. And we're going to come back to Claudia Brenner and some of the other cases you detail. I mean, in essence, there are so many cases that you detail. They're each books in, the, in and of their own right, aren't they? And the level of violence and brutality, I mean, it, it really is so disturbing it's so worthy of attention and, and everybody should be up in arms about the lack of resolution in these cases, but also the lack of accountability for the, for the law enforcement agencies who are charged with public protection. Um, but before I, you know, get incredibly angry again, let's, let's jump back to Lolly and Julie, um, because we're talking about May, the last week of May in 1996, aren't we, time-wise? Just describe their ages and just, you know, a, a little bit about them as outdoor leaders. Sure. So so both had completed this leadership training at Woods Women. So at that point, they were really, you know, bona fide wilderness guides. They were certified as wilderness first responders. They were wilderness experts and leaders. They were well-versed in backcountry camping pack practices and protocols, what we call in the sort of industry LNT or leave no trace ideologies. 
Lolly was finishing up her academic year at Unity College, a small environmental studies college in Maine, um, where she was majoring in outdoor recreation and leadership. Julie, at that point, had graduated, was considering graduate school, and they had embarked upon what was going to be a fairly easy seven to 10 day trip in the Shenandoah National Park where, you know, they, again, were sort of really in their element. They knew the rules. They knew how to stay safe. And so I think that's part of why the attack against them is all the more terrifying. You know, when you think about the fact that by all accounts, you know, they knew what to do, they really were backcountry leaders. And I think that that's what makes this all the more terrifying is that these were two women who really knew all the rules and knew how to stay safe. And yet they were still targeted. Yeah, really important point. They were competent. They were outdoors women. They were leaders. They were used to going off and doing their thing. So competent women. We forget those kinds of details. You know, we think, oh, two women were out. They were, they were killed on a trail and the nuance gets lost. And just whilst you're, Catherine, you've got a dog alerting by, by your side right now, they took a, a dog as well, Taj, right? So he was also on the trail with them. Right, right. So two very athletic, competent women who would have moved through the wilderness very confidently, right? And as you say, a quite large dog, a dog that was a uh, golden lab, golden retriever mix, who by all accounts was fiercely protective of Lolly, um, which again makes, I think, the fact that a person or persons would be willing to predate on this situation all the more chilling. Yes, and two women together as well. You know, double homicides like this are... are relatively rare. But when we start to zone into Virginia, what you show in your book is actually they're not that rare. And that again makes it more significant. Yes, the fact that Taj was with them. Now we know you detail that some of the witnesses say they saw both the women, they saw the dog, they saw that Taj was struggling a little bit. It had been very hot. So weather-wise it had been hot and then it had, had cooled down a little bit. Um, but he was a dog that was likely to alert. And I think they were struggling with him alerting through the night as well. So where they end up pitching their tent was somewhat remote. Um, and perhaps before we get to you describing just where they ended up, and there is a map in the book, which is really helpful. And we will just go into the geography a little bit because you know it much better than I. But it's probably worth mentioning that Lolly was 26 and Judy was 24. Now, in my opinion, um, and I know I've said this to you before, but they looked much younger than that. And whether that's just about them or whether it's more, when I think about when I'm on trails and climbing Kilimanjaro and so on, no makeup, just back to basics. It's funny how many people commented on, you know, for me, wow, you look so young in these photos. That something interesting happens, I think, when people are in a place of natural beauty, when you're outdoors camping, and of course you're stripped back to basics. But to me, they did look much younger. Now, whether that played a part or not, I'm not sure. What What do you think about that? Well, I think when we take it in conjunction with these other murders in Virginia, we do start to see a real pattern emerge. It does seem like, aside from one outlying case, which we can talk about, there were seven murders over the course of about 18 months. And um, aside from this one outlying case, which involved an older woman, there does seem to be a real demographic type, which is you know, a young woman in her teens or early 20s, brown hair, brown eyes, you know. And so I think if we want to start to make an argument that a serial killer is at work here, you know, it gets pretty easy when you start lining up photos of these victims. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go to? 
What do you need to face the day? Now for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Yes, photos and, and victimology is really important. Particular victims chosen at a particular time for a particular reason in a particular place. You're not just going to happen upon the, the women in terms of the, you know, cases like Lolly and Julie, where they were, the remote area. You're not just going to stumble upon them. This was very much intentional, premeditated, pre-planned behaviour. Let's talk about the geography, first of all, before we go into the, the crime scene. Tell us a bit about the trail and also about where they pitched their tent, because you've been there quite a few times, haven't you? Des you describe it vividly in the book. Yes. So this is Shenandoah National Park, which is, you know, a, a stunningly beautiful place, but it's a somewhat unique park in that it's very long and narrow. It actually runs through seven different counties in the state of Virginia, which will prove difficult later on in terms of who has the sort of jurisdiction and law enforcement. But again, very rural. It's about two hours by car from Washington, D.C. And back in the 1990s, there was really only one route to get from Washington, D.C. to the park. And it was a very rural, not often traveled road. So 
really, this is this is remote, you know, and in a lot of ways, as I say in the book, it's it's almost like a Western park when you think about those Western expanses of land where you can go quite a long time without seeing another person. That experience is definitely possible within the park. Um, it runs along the ridge of the Appalachian Mountains, one of the oldest mountain ranges in the world and also home to the Appalachian Trail which right now is an incredibly populated trail. But back in the 1990s, there were not a lot of people who were doing what we call through hikes or end-to-end hikes from this trail that spans from Georgia to Maine. So again, lots of wilderness available if you want it. There's also a major road that runs through the park called Skyline Drive, which is where most visitors restrict their visits, multiple resorts and lodges as well too. So in that regard, it's kind of a best of both worlds for someone like Lolly and Julie they can stop at a lodge and have a hamburger or get a beer or just, you know, use a proper restroom and then get back on the trail and have a very remote wilderness experience all in one day. And in that time, you'd need a permit, right? So, so they sort out a permit? Right. So to camp outside of campgrounds in these national parks, you're required to get what's called a backcountry permit. And that would prove very useful during the investigation because on these permits, you have to sort of detail your itinerary, where you intend to stay, how long you'll be in the park. And you also sort of sign this little contract saying that you agree to participate in backcountry policies. And so we do know that Lolly and Julie took out two backcountry permits during their time there. And so based on those permits, we can retrace their steps to some degree of accuracy. And we can also uh, begin to retrace their interactions with rangers and, and the way that they were sort of perceived as they were moving through the park. And you did that incredibly well. I mean, describing your conversations with witnesses, what they saw, what they understood. And that timeline, that sequence of events is really important, like you say. There's some discrepancy about when they were killed. Yeah, right? you know, and I and I, I pause and sort of sigh when you say that because there is no discrepancy as far as the main, the I'm sorry, the Virginia State Medical Examiner is concerned. The The Virginia State Medical Examiner using a very reliable test in which they gauged the levels of potassium in the eye, was able to state beyond a doubt that the the women were killed on May 28th. And if you go back through the original FBI files, motions, things like that, they all state the day of May 28th. It's only much later when they're pursuing one particular individual for the crime that the FBI and the National Park Service police, who have joint purview in these cases that occur in national park land, they literally, when without any justification, medical or otherwise, walk the date of death back at least three days. And that is still so utterly beguiling and infuriating to me. It's one of those moments that I still just feel a lot of anger and have so many questions. Yes, I'm glad you said that. And I wanted you to say that because we know it was approximately at 10 p.m. is what the the medical examiner said on May the 28th, 1996. And you've got it in bold in your book. And why I say the discrepancy is, as you said, it comes later on. So, So that's what was written in the case file. It did take some time before the crime scene was processed as well. But we'll get to that. 
And a trigger warning again, we are going to talk about the crime scene specifically. Now, it is important for us to talk about it. And you did have access to the crime scene photos as well as the journals. And you've read an awful lot of material pertaining to this case. But the crime scene details are important because for someone like me, the analysis of it holds up the mirror to who the perpetrator is. And I'm saying is and not was because this case is... I've mentioned is is unresolved and we will talk about the investigation specifically. But can you tell us a little bit about the, the crime scene so that we get a sense of, first of all, where the tent was pitched, but also what was discovered? Right, right. Absolutely. So the women somehow found their way to this very disused trail called the Bridal Trail in the park. And once upon a time, about 10 years Previously, it had been a trail that had been used to take families on horseback rides originating from the Skyland Lodge, which is sort of at the top of the the hill that this trail descends. Um, But because the trail is on the opposite side of Skyline Drive from the lodge, there were obvious safety issues with having novice horseback riders sort of trying to navigate traffic. So they relocated that trail. And in the 10 years after, the trail fell into utter disuse. It dropped off of maps. It dropped off of local knowledge. As I say in the book, I still struggle to find the trailhead. And I've been there, I can't even imagine how many times at this point. It's just, it's not an obvious trail. So so one very important question, I think, to answer at some point is, how did the women ever even find this trail? And why did they decide to descend down it? Somewhat miraculously, about a third of a mile down the trail, they did find what was sort of a perfect and very hidden campsite. Um, They bushwhacked about 100 or so yards into the forest and found this very just pristine, idyllic and beautiful place. It was um, a stretch of flat land. It was not overgrown with bush and shrubs. There was a stream raging nearby. And I say, as a backcountry camper, had I found this campsite, I would have thought I was the luckiest camper in the entire world. And I would have thought I had found the most hidden, perfect, beautiful spot. And I do, as, as a writer and as a woman, and you know, as somebody who's thought about this case so often, I do take some solace in knowing that they did at least spend their last moments in such a beautiful place, um, and a place that's still very beautiful today. But but regardless, as I've said before, and as you know, this this trail, which descends fairly steeply, is so overgrown that the campsite was completely invisible for most of the trail, except for one very small spot where the trail kind of levels out for a bit. And from there, you can kind of peek through the woods and see the tent. And what we do know is that there's some evidence to suggest that the perpetrator might have been there and might have been observing the women for some time. But how the perpetrator found them is, again, a very big question, particularly given how long it took rangers to find them after the women were reported missing and presumed dead. Yes. And that, to me, I mean, when I first understood that, I felt that they were being watched probably for a little bit of time. And once you get into stalking, and I'm going to call it that, you know, people think that stalking is something quite different, where actually this is predatory stalking, where women are being targeted and watched, and there's normally a sexual motivation. But the sexual motivation, you know, most oftentimes stems from power and control. It's a power and control related crime. That's what sex crimes are about. So with this particular crime, we're going to get get into the detail. There seemed to be a fantasy base, but there was 
a level of meticulous planning. You know, this individual didn't just happen upon them. He had things with him. He took a kit with him with an intention to harm women. So that, again, is quite important. Can you describe what happened in terms of the discovery and and what was seen? And and we'll get into the the detail of the behaviour and then what it was characterised as by the rangers, because these two things contradict each other. Right, right. So Julie was due back in Vermont to begin a summer job and was the kind of person who was never late, never tardy, never sort of shirked responsibility. So after she failed to return home to some obligations, her father called. Well, and at first it was a big question about who to call, right? You know, and so again, this is really before the internet existed in any kind of meaningful way. And he didn't know who to call to report his daughter missing in the park. And he finally got a hold of the Rangers. The Rangers enacted a very low level cursory search, fully expecting and being justified in assuming that they, the women just had decided to stay longer, had left the park and gone to visit a friend. And it wasn't um, until several days when Taj, the dog, appeared without a collar, looking very shaken, very scared, that all of a sudden the rangers realized that there was no way the women could still be alive. And so then that launched an immediate search, which became focused in large part because of where Taj was found. One of the things that's always been very curious to me is the fact that this particular trail, the bridal trail, had been patrolled as a search for Lolly and Julie multiple times, including by the ranger responsible for overseeing that part of the park, and the tent had never been seen. It was after dusk on Saturday, June 1st, that two young male rangers um, happened upon the tent. They won't speak to me. They're some of the only rangers in this case who won't speak to me. And so it's never been explained to me how and why it is that they were able to find the tent you know, on the dark side of this mountain, you know, after the sun had set. I think that's a really big question to ask. And it's one that I think deserves an answer. They did, based on the report that they filed, they wandered into the campsite. They found a body that was wrapped in a sleeping bag inside the tent. They found another body that was wrapped in a sleeping bag and had been pushed over the stream of the the embankment of the stream about 30 yards away. And at that point, things get very curious. In their report, they reported very high levels of decomposition to the point that they argued that the scalp of one of the women was no longer attached to her head. That would prove to be beyond false. There was next to no decomposition found on either body. They also made a couple of very strange assessments, including the fact that this must have been a fatal bear attack, which is criminal when you assume that both women were bound and gagged, had their arms we would later discover bound behind their backs with duct tape and had been stuffed inside their sleeping bags. So the idea that this was anything other than a murder from the start is is impossible. And yet that was the story that was reported to park officials. What then begins is really the fog of war. There's a question about who's in charge, to what degree the FBI is in charge versus the park rangers. These are two very different cultures. They do not regularly work together. And when they do work together, they have very different protocols. As far as we can tell, 
it became very botched at that point. A lot of evidence was presumably lost. Um, the FBI had just launched a new program known as their evidence response teams, ERTs. This team had never worked before and had never worked in a wilderness situation before. That's not really where the FBI's purview is located. They destroyed evidence trying to get fingerprints and things. So again, it's just it becomes a, a huge mess very quickly. But as you mentioned, you know, we do have a series of very detailed crime scene photos, both macro and micro. So we are able to recreate the scene in some detail. And as you said, what we do know was that this was a very meticulous, very planned, very controlled event. The perpetrator arrived with duct tape, with gloves, with a knife, probably also with a gun, managed to subdue these two women, bound and gagged them at least once, probably twice separated them. We know sexually assaulted Julie with what we think was probably a vibrator, um, used some bondage straps, which were not found at the scene, and then left the crime scene in a very organized and orderly fashion, aside from two very strange things, a pair of gloves that were found at the scene, and then also um, sort of an an old school, very um, no frills vibrator that was staged right in the center of the women's backpacks. So there was a huge amount of crime scene behaviour. I mean, for someone like me listening to you and and the detail, the medical examiner says around 10 o'clock. So the tent was also slashed as well. So this individual most likely waited until they were settled. And then we have to think about to control two women, two competent, two athletic women. Yes, we know a knife was used because of the injuries to their necks, But I would agree that oftentimes if you're going to subdue two people, particularly if you are some, well, you've learned your, I'm going to call it mastercraft, you know, you've learned what works and what doesn't. And to control two people simultaneously, even though they're women, we have to remember they're competent women and there's a dog there. It's most likely that there probably was another weapon and most likely that he killed one, probably Lolly first. Um, and Julie was taken out of the tent. So it's most likely they knew what was happening, which I would imagine. And not only that, but very strangely during the autopsies, both women's stomachs were empty, except that Julie had um, what was described as a yellowish liquid in her stomach. Um, A Walmart bag with a half-consumed bottle of Mountain Dew was found at the scene. Neither women shopped at Walmart. Neither women drank Mountain Dew. And so some theorists have also posited that this perpetrator also was hydrating Julie to kind of keep her sort of alive and active longer, which again, is just a terrifying thought. Yes. And I think given that we know he did spend time there, this may have played out over longer a longer duration rather than just being he attacks them. We don't know how long he was present with them for, but to do all the things that he did, it took time. So that was probably part of the the whole fantasy base. Now, whether that was, do we know whether that was there was any any were any drugs in the Mountain Dew? Was there anything found toxicology wise? No, none was found. Okay. But the fact they've been bound and they both were gagged, well, you can certainly rule out immediately a bear attack. And we laugh at it, but it's just so outrageous. It's egregious on every level, isn't it? That Even if you say, well, they weren't educated, they weren't trained in crime scene behaviour, the common sense part 
of understanding that two women who've been zipped head to toe in a sleeping bag and they have wounds to their neck and they were gagged and bound, that tells you not a bear attack and it tells you not a murder-suicide. So it's egregious on every level that that's what it was explained away as, first of all. And we should say that, and this is where things become very chilling and insidious for me, again, as a park goer, is when news was brought to the park officials that these bodies had been found, the park officials made a very deliberate decision, which is outlined in a memo that I quote from in the book, to obfuscate and hide this information both from park goers and from the media. And so they made the decision to not at all announce this until the media discovered on their own. And when the media did finally discover three days after the bodies were found that a crime had occurred, the park's official response was, we believe this was a murder-suicide, which again is logistically impossible, even to an amateur's eyes, when you consider how the two women were found. Absolutely. It's just disgusting. The issue for me is also public protection of other women. As a woman, I'm absolutely affronted by that because other women who you spoke to, and quite rightly, they were terrified when they found out, but we have a right to know so that we don't need to know all the detail, but to make an informed choice about whether we then put ourselves in that park or not. Most men don't even think about that. If it doesn't relate to them, they don't think about the repercussions of how that would then translate to, to other women. So it is unconscionable in, in every respect. Now, the detail, again, of, of the crime scene, the fact that the duct tape was brought and it was very meticulously cut and there was evidence that it was cut and then put on something before it was actually used. So he's spending time with each of them. The fact that a vibrator was brought and you spoke to lots of Lolly and Julie's friends, and they don't believe that it was theirs. They had intimate knowledge of them. They don't believe it was theirs. So if that was brought to the scene as well, and the fact that it was most likely used on Julie, again, foreign object insertion and that sort of behaviour, yes, it can be about hatred, misogyny, defiling, power and control, but it can also be about impotence and erectile dysfunction of not being able to penetrate, so using something else. Um, but that was left out intentionally to, in my view, to probably shock and shame the, the two things together. What did you think about that, Catherine? I think you're right. I think you're right. You know, we do know a few more details because of forensic work. We know, as I mentioned, that there were these very peculiar leather restraints that were used on Julie's legs. We know that because of some UV imaging that was done. So it appears, again, as if there was sort of a, a prolonged sexual encounter, if you can even use that word in this particular case. There were also two uh, lubricants that were used on Julie that were found in her genitalia that were not found at the crime scene as well. So again, this was a person who was taking his time, right? And as you say, was very sort of methodically either exploring or exploiting sexual fantasies that he had had that were particularly sort of, I think, located in sort of a BDSM culture as well, too. And I think also very tellingly took both the lubricants and this leather restraining device with him when he left the scene. But as you say, left this vibrator, which, you know, one, one of the, the rabbit holes that I went down while I was doing this research was, was really into the history of, of vibrators, which was fascinating for me. And, you know, talked to arguably the, the reigning expert on, on vibrator history. And 
you know, she was like, look, this was a one-off cheap vibrator that you could buy at a truck stop. And, and what we know is by that point in time, you know, women had access to far more sophisticated and sort of female centric sexual devices and vibrators and things like that, which is one reason why people speculate that this was not Lolly and Julie's. We do know, you know, sort of what they, what they had sort of in their own repertoire sexually, and it wasn't this particular vibrator. So again, you know, I think it would be as you say, sort of a taunt, perhaps maybe also a test of law enforcement officers to see if this would be reported in the news. And again, you know, based on on who I think is a very strong suspect, he certainly had plenty of others at home that he wouldn't need. You know, he wouldn't miss this particular one. Yes. And in the book, you also talk about some of Lolly's hair that's missing. Was hair missing? Was it was it cut or was that something that was written in a report by one of the law enforcement officials that was there? That was written in a report. And I think it sometimes gets misrepresented. I've never had it fully identified to me. It, it appears as if one of the women, what we do know is he originally very kind of hurriedly bound and gagged the women and then rebound and gagged them more, more effectively, I think probably once they were subdued and separated. Um, and so there is, there is a clump of hair that's found in some of the duct tape on. And I think that may be what people are referring to in that particular case. But again, you know, one of the people I name as a potential suspect in the book was known for keeping locks of hair of women, presumably some of his um, victims at home in sort of a, a cache that he had there. Yes. And I've known some perpetrators to do that. Um, and we'll get to that particular individual. But all these details are just so important. You know, the time spent, well, it's an area where they're unlikely to be interrupted. So he knows he's got time on his side, but playing out these fantasies and this power and control over over Lolly and Julie and the suggestion that he may well have watched them first of all. Well, there was a, a couple of cigarette butts found and an empty beer can in, in that little clearing that you spoke about, wasn't there? So, th- so that was why there was a, a belief, and I certainly share it, that he was watching them for some time. And that that preparatory behaviour, that's also part of the sexual fantasy, the actual watching and having power over by watching and knowing what you're going to do is all part of it. It's all part of the same event. And that bondage, the, the restraints being used as well, well, there are some that may well be functional um, in order to restrain, but others may well be much more about fantasy-related behaviours. Absolutely, absolutely. And we should say that so far as I know, those cigarette butts and that beer can, the DNA gleaned from those has never been tested against DNA found at the scene. Which to me is just insane. You know, when you have forensics and things aren't being tested, and, and we'll come back to that. I'm jumping in here to wrap part one. There's a lot of crime scene behaviour to analyse in this case, including stalking. In my opinion, the killer was a predatory stalker. I believe he was watching Julie and Lolly for some time, and he spent more time at the scene, and it was an isolated location, and he came prepared. He knew exactly what he was going to do to Julie and Lolly, and this was predatory power and control, fantasy-based behaviour. And yes, you heard that right, As far as what's known, the cigarette butts and the beer can and the DNA gleaned from them has never been tested with the DNA found at the scene. 
That's perplexing, don't you think? And we have much more to discuss in part two. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. 